What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and joined with me today is the Wisecrack crew. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And Claire. Hey! That is Dr. Claire. Claire just uh, officially became a doctor. She got her PhD. Congratulations, Claire. Thank you. I haven't... I haven't graduated yet, but it is academic oh. tradition to call someone doctor after they defend their dissertation. So I will accept all of the callings of doctors. In fact, I've instructed all of my friends to only refer to me as doctor from now on. <laughs> hey, you know how cool. Michael has his nickname as Dr. Nihilism? Claire, what's yours going to be for Wisecrack? I had no idea that that, like Mike Burns? Yeah. Yeah. That's his nickname? Yeah, well, because, you on know, he Morty did his podcast, PhD yeah. on Kierkegaard, and he writes a lot on, nah, he wrote the Bojack Horseman vid on nihilism and yeah. stuff, so he kind of took up that name. So we have to come up with one for you now, too, Claire. Well, where is everyone calling him Dr. Nihilism? Is there a group chat that I wasn't invited to? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, the, I know the subject. Yes. <laughs> I know the subject of Claire's dissertation, and I'm definitely not going to name her based on that. Uh, no, you can you can call me Doctor Abortion. That's fine. I've been, I've, I've been making jokes for years, like, oh, I'm going to be an abortion doctor. I'll have my doctorate in abortion, so I'll be an abortion doctor. Oh, that's um, so funny. right. Anyway, today we're talking about Eighth Grade, the 2018 movie written and directed by Bo Burnham, starring Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton. As always, we're going to go around, get first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched this movie and what is it like revisiting it? Let's start with Claire. Um, So I watched this movie for the first time um, about 10 minutes ago. And I'm still crying a little bit. Uh, I, I I loved it. I'm so glad that I watched it with my best friend next to me. Um, she, like me, has been an eighth grade girl, and uh, there was so, oh my gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get emotionally affected every time I talk about it. Um, there, there was it was such a good and accurate representation of what it feels like to be an eighth grade girl, especially an eighth grade girl who deals with anxiety and who isn't one of the cool ones. Um, And, you know, the awkwardness of her dad and the awkwardness of the principal. I just, Mm -hmm. I am so amazed that Bo Burnham was able to pull off such an accurate representation of being an eighth grade girl. It was spectacular. Um, It was moving. I loved the little story arc. Um, I... I have probably a lot more to say about it, which is good because we're recording a long podcast. But the, the the you know first impression is I would die for this movie. Oh, yeah, Austin. What about you? Yeah, I was not a teenage girl, but I um I I'm someone who is becoming increasingly more aware. I mean, I'm sure we all are, but I'm somebody who's obsessing, let's say, on on the social and psychological, spiritual, philosophical effects of the internet age, right? And so this film for me just kind of came out at a, at a really important time in my kind of own personal and social journey. And I have a friend who has a preteen daughter, 12 years old, when I saw the film. And I immediately messaged him and I was like, and he's a single dad. And I immediately was like, bro, mm. have you seen this film? 
And he was like, yes. And I said, I, I am so sorry for you and your daughter. I was like, <laughs> I was like, my heart goes out to both of you. And he's like, bro, this movie is terrifying and gut-wrenching, and it makes me want to just shield her from the world. And I was like, Ooh, I get that, yeah. you know? And so I, I kind of have it from a certain amount of degrees of separation. But, um, yeah, it still was an extremely effective film upon me. Yeah. I missed this movie last year somehow. I saw it for the first time last week, and everyone had told me that it was good, that it was good. And I watched it last week, and I was blown the fuck away. It is so good. It's the best movie of last year. It's the only movie to usurp Mission Impossible 6 in my book. <laughs> um, Goddamn, Bo Burnham is just so good. I, I, I'm just in awe of him. If he died tomorrow, this movie would already make him a legend. Um, and, you know, it's weird because I had seen Bo Burnham. I think his popularity was like a little bit younger than my age group. And someone once tried to show me one of his early stand up specials where everything was very ironic and everything was just kind of like meta jokes. And I was just kind of rolling my eyes because I was a little bit tired of meta humor. But then mm -hmm. I saw one of his more recent stand up specials. Is it happy? Is that the one that's and, and I was really Make impressed happy. by that. Yeah. Make happy. I was really impressed by that, but this just took it to a whole new level. This guy is probably the most talented person to come out of YouTube. This movie is fucking amazing. It's mm. so good. I, I just, I don't even know what else to say. I mean, I watched the movie and then I was like, all right, we're doing this next for the podcast because this blew away <laughs> all my expectations. And yes, it may perhaps does not need to be said, but I did not grow up as a teenage girl either. But man, I'm always, I always look back at my middle school experience and say, I can imagine all of my angst being much worse with social media. Mm. And so this tapped into something that I think about a lot and that we've actually talked about a, a couple times in our podcasts. And so um, I'm really glad that he tackled this issue in the movie. And I think he did it extremely well, not being too over the top condemning of social media, but really, I mean, Although I can't really speak to what it is, I'm tempted to say showing it for what it is because whether or not it's authentic, I can't speak to. But God damn it, does it feel like it? So, well, I mean, I think that I heard him say once on uh, – I think it was called the Green Room chat where it's like him and um, a bunch of other comedians that are like Gary Shandling is there and uh, Ray Romano and I, I can't remember. There are a couple others. But they're sitting around talking and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember when I first started getting like YouTube comments. And he's like, I remember the first one that I got that I was like, oh, you know, he's like a teenage boy. He's like 14 years old. He's like really excited. And the comment was um, like, go, go 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 faggot something and he was like oh cool <laughs> welcome to the internet right so yeah i think he's he's coming at this from like a real deep space of his own anxieties that he has encountered um the question is is without that sort of uh standpoint to be able to create the representation of of a girl and um i i don't know if he just is an excellent listener or if he had collaborators or if he let what's the the actress's name Elsie Fisher. She's great. I don't know if she was able to contribute much on things, but it just seems to have – he seems to have his finger on the pulse, and the script seems to, like Claire say, just be a really excellent representation. And I don't know. It, when you're trying to make a film, you can tell when it's something that's really personal. You can tell when it's something that the director is able to articulate and translate through the visual medium in a way that um, 
actually just kind of like issues forth from their core. Or you can tell when it's kind of just something that they've read about. And this seems to really be the former, that it actually issues from his own experience, which I think makes it that much more um, kind of affective and visceral of an experience. I mean, I, I can't really speak to this with any authority, but I would imagine that growing up with social media is harder for girls than it is for boys, but that's just really my guess. It is. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I I think I'm just a little bit younger than both of you, not by a lot, but by enough that um, Bo Burnham was really popular when I was in like early to mid high school. Mm. Um, So I did get that early Bo Burnham. Um, I also, you know, uh, had social media in high school um i uh i didn't have an instagram because my parents wouldn't let me which is definitely different than it is now but i think that i got a little bit of the earlier exposure nothing like what it's like today um i i even see like my little brothers who are well i mean my youngest one is eight years younger than me and just the totally different way of understanding the world. I don't want to say that it's better or worse or a bad thing, but you see the world through a certain kind of filter. And um, that's not to say that there aren't different filters that, you know, you or me or Austin use, but the sort of filter that social media provides has really concrete impacts. And you can see that in the studies that have come out about, um, you know, correlations between depression and anxiety and um, social media use. Um, And also just the, and the movie covered this a little bit, the sort of epidemic of um, pressuring um, girls into uh, sending like dirty photos and um, sending girls unsolicited dick pics. And I mean, there it's I don't want to say always, but it's, you know, at least for a very, very, very long time been the case that girls get pressured into things at a young age. Um, But with the advent of social media, especially in the visual mediums like Snapchat and Instagram, there's a special kind of ease to it where it's Mm. so simple to take a photo and share it you don't have to meet up with someone you don't have to like find a way to sneak away from your parents um you don't have to be at a party it's so weirdly convenient that i think those expectations are in some ways even more present than they were um I don't know when I when I was in eighth grade and I don't know if it's a difference in degree or a difference in kind but I think it's it's an important one and so I'm really glad that um at I think a couple points uh but at the very least when uh the main character Kayla was talking to this super dorky guy Aiden that she was in love with (laughs) yeah that I mean the representation of eighth grade boys I loved so much very very accurate um but you know when when we were in eighth grade we loved them all the same um yeah the the whole conversation about like dirty pics and oh he dumped his last girlfriend because she wouldn't send him like a nude um that really I think captures something very specific about the vulnerability of teenage girls especially or and preteen girls and the way 
that or one way out of many ways that this particular social media era sort of exacerbates and preys upon that. Do any of you guys know any eighth grade age girls? Uh, yeah. I have, you haven't sp- I've been a camp counselor before, so I, I don't have like a niece or something, but I have interacted extensively with preteen girls. Mm. Well, <clears throat> since you just watched the movie 10 minutes ago, I imagine you haven't asked them about the movie, but I'm very curious to hear what somebody in middle school thinks about the movie because I'm of the opinion that social media just moves so quickly that even Bo Burnham might be getting old now i wonder if someone in eighth grade might look at this film and say like oh dick pics on snapchat that's so fourth grade or something that's funny you know what was cool Uh, so because the film got uh i think it was was it r-rated yeah um yeah they were actually not you know obviously you have to be you have to have an adult with you if you're of this age if you're actually an eighth grade person to be able to see the film in the theater but um there was a petition online to actually get a few theaters to show this um, at theater houses in various different cities around at least the United States where they would allow 18-year-olds to actually go in. And I don't know how, if it was like some sort of special, like they did a cut or if uh, if it was like parents were able to sign a waiver beforehand and let their – I don't know what it was. But it were, it were these – it was this group of showings where people could go to the picture show and they could watch this even if you were in eighth grade. And it was something that Bo Burnham really was campaigning behind because he was like, look, this film is actually really important for people of this age to go see. And I thought that was really kind of interesting. So I don't know what the experience was of those people who saw it, but I know that there was a concerted effort to have eighth graders actually exposed to it in the theater. It's, yeah. it's interesting that it has an R rating. I imagine it has to just be be because it has more than one fuck in it right because there's no nudity um there's no like excessive violence um it's probably just because of language right i wonder part of me thinks that maybe even just the mention of underage girl nudie photos or whatever might be enough to qualify it for an r rating but that's Mm -hmm. just my guessing i haven't really looked into it i mean mpaa is a strange and wild beast so (laughs) who's to say um i it's interesting as i was watching it actually like wrote this down in my notes uh i i wrote i don't think this is meant for actual eighth graders so it's really interesting to me that bo burnham i mean who would know better than anyone who it was meant for was campaigning for eighth graders to be able to see it Uh, Because the way that I read a lot of the film was showing, I mean, within a really, you know, poignant story arc, it was also showing what the new normal is, where the, you know, active shooter training was just background noise to whatever was going on in the in the eighth graders lives it wasn't anything super significant it was just the new normal the well, now hold on that was that yeah. actually a joke i was actually wondering about that the the active shooter training i couldn't tell if that was a dark joke or if that no, no. actually this happens, happens. this oh, this wow. this literally even happens with, even I, with because there's even been with some debate with headshot uh, on... wounds that are like makeup no, no i mean so that, there's be been a debate online about whether or not this is um this is like child abuse because wow. they're they're kind of forcing children to, you know, live out these horrific, fantastic scenarios. So but I mean, it's kind of similar to like when my parents were in school, they had to do um, uh, like, like the nuclear, nuclear bomb. Yeah. Like put, go under the desk and cover your head. Yeah. The Russians are going to like blow us all to smithereens, which could happen at any minute. So just remember that. So you're constantly living in this fear. I mean, I don't know what the level of intensity is. But um, 
like so I don't know how effective it is on your psyche, but I I guarantee you it has some sort of constitutive effect that that runs pretty deep. Mm. Sorry to cut you off, Claire. What were you saying? Oh no, that's fine. Uh, I was just talking about how I think it had the way I had read it while I was watching it was that it was meant for. Uh, older generations and by older you know it could even mean the high schoolers who have a conversation in the movie about how the eighth graders are of a different generation than them uh just meant for older generations to give yeah this really interesting you know heartfelt story but in the context of presenting this is the new normal and you can see so clearly the things that haven't changed at all about being in eighth grade and the things that have changed so much. And I think that, I mean, I am not currently in eighth grade, so (laughs) I can't speak to how, you know, I would feel about this as an eighth grader. But I think that a lot of the things that really struck me watching this film as an adult would not strike me in the same way watching it in eighth grade. It wouldn't have some of the it wouldn't have some of the same messaging or interest uh in like connecting my experiences as an eighth grader to what people are experiencing today I think that that contrast that juxtaposition is a really critical part of the film and I would just wonder if that would have any kind of meaning to an eighth grader watching it now Hmm. that's a good question yeah because if it's just normal to them then maybe they're just like uh yeah duh I don't know. We'll get into it. Let me go through a recap real quick. So, eighth grader Kayla Day is approaching her final days of middle school and trying to make friends both on and offline. She posts YouTube videos about self-improvement and follows that advice in pursuit of popularity. All the while, her dad Mark looks on and unsuccessfully tries to connect with her. When Kayla is invited to the popular Kennedy's pool party, she beasts through her anxiety and puts herself out there, meeting the awkward Gabe, swimming in the pool, singing karaoke, and even having an awkward exchange with her crush Aiden. At high school orientation, Kayla is paired up with high schooler Olivia, and they get along famously. Kayla is beyond excited when Olivia invites her to hang out at the mall with her and her friends. On the way home, Olivia is dropped off, leaving Kayla with another high schooler who creepily tries to hook up with her. Kayla refuses, is dropped off, and breaks down at home. Kayla decides to stop making videos, aspiring to some greater version of herself. She destroys a time capsule she made when she was in sixth grade, envisioning her as such, and creates a new one that tells her to just keep looking forward. She tells off Kennedy, graduates, and hangs out with Gabe, and it's ridiculously heartwarming. The end. So I just want to talk about some random awesome stuff about this movie. I think the casting in this movie is so good. Even the principal is so believable <laughs> and so just just so awkward. And oh God, I, it's just, I don't really know what else to say other than I'm just like gushing with praise for this movie. Um, like when the principal dabs, the adults are always trying to be cool. <laughs> Even uh, her dad has some funny moments when he tries to be jokey with her. Noise. Yeah, so good. Uh, anything you guys thought was funny? Oh, I just, I mean, the whole time I was watching it, I was either laughing or crying. Um, there were so many funny moments for me. Uh, I, it's hard to, I, I didn't write down like, this is something I thought was funny. It was just little things along the way that, um, sort of the, 
hilarity of you know the mundane um i actually i did write down one thing when she was on tumblr and um how do you pronounce it from harry potter that the summoning spell is it uh accio 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 i think accio at least that's what they say in the movies okay it was uh one of the tumblr uh handles was uh accio shitpost and (laughs) i was like that's just the most perfect eighth grade tumblr i've ever seen in my life um watching the sort of makeup tutorials um uh the scenes with um the older girl where she just uh keeps telling her olivia where she keeps telling her how cool she is like just really tiny little things that i think maybe played by other actors or in the setting of a different film wouldn't necessarily be funny but i think i agree that it's so well cast and the actors are so good that there are just a thousand tiny little moments that set me off like laughing out loud do do Mm. they they still say lol these days (laughs) lolling yeah i mean and it's so good too that you know it's shot in a high school and it 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 has an authenticity to it that again makes it it seemed to not be something that is purely just a representation, but that is a genuine expression. And for me, that's when art is powerful. You know, when it when it kind of diminishes as much as possible the degrees of separation from whatever it is that it's trying to speak of. And uh, I mean, yeah, you got the principle. I mean, for me, the I can't empathize entirely with being a 13 year old girl but I can empathize pretty damn much entirely with being a single father and having a teenage daughter like that is really possible that is really likely right like shit I mean it could even be the case that I have a teenage daughter somewhere I don't think I do (laughs) but it could be the case right like if you're mothering uh Austin's teenage daughter leave us a comment (laughs) it is entirely possible so but no so like for me it's it's is it Josh Hamilton as an actor yeah. who, who I think he is so underrated. He's I've actually always really liked him um, kind of, you know, in his supporting roles and stuff like that. He just has a, a kind of sweetness about him in general. And he, you know, it's not like he's and I'm really glad that he wasn't over the top nerdy, you know, like like, yeah, he's still nerdy and he's trying and you're like, dude, <laughs> just stop right now. <laughs> OK, just at this moment, just stop. Um, but he's not it's not like he's a caricature. He seems to be a pretty a pretty authentic character uh, expression of what it would be like to be a dude that is just separated by twenty years from from what you and sex and gender of what from what your daughter is going through. Um, but I, I don't know. I just that to me that a lot of the funny stuff, a lot of the comedic stuff, comes from that contradiction between her experience and him just doing his best you know and it's like doesn't matter dude what you try to do your best is always there's going to be a gap and there's a lot of tension there and that's that comedic tension that i think is really well handled yeah first thing i want to talk about is the score so it was scored by a musician named anna meredith and oh god i think this is one of the most masterful things about this movie because it, it's full of these heavy blaring synths and i really think that this music highlights the anxiety that claire was talking about earlier because it's a It's a weird mix of serene euphoria and blaring anxiety. And I Mm. think that that crossroads is basically the experience of going through social media. And I think that the score is just so masterfully done. And just a really good 
solid creative choice to to collaborate with Anna Meredith or if Anna Meredith decide I don't know I don't know her work very well but uh, if she decided to have it this kind of big blaring synth aesthetic I thought it was just oh so good and so precise I didn't notice the it next yeah I didn't notice it either but I think that for me when I don't notice a score that's often a positive it means that it meshed so well with the tone of the movie and mm-hmm. with whatever was happening in that scene that it seemed not like a natural fit so I'm not yeah. somebody who you know looks out for the score who pays special attention to it um, but I I mean I fully believe you because it it never caught my attention as being out of place you know yeah. when you're talking to a real cinephile when they're like can we just talk about the score of the film for a second <laughs> jared did you did you go to film school or something uh, maybe. <laughs> all right let's move the conversation to social media so uh, i'm also going to be talking about the so the scene i want to first focus on is there's the scene where it's the first time that we see she's come home from school and she's surfing the web on her phone, and the song Orinoco Flow by Anya, basically the Sail Away song, is playing. Mm -hmm. And we see her face overlaid at half opacity on top of the various memes, videos, et cetera, on social media. And I really, really love how this is dramatized because to me it's almost like a drug experience. Mm. Um, it, it, It communicates this kind of numbing anxiety that this endless flow of distraction although on the one hand as i said earlier it is a bit euphoric and serene but on the other hand you're always anxious always full of fomo and i feel like i'm almost watching a scene from train spotting to me it does feel like a drug experience and i mm. just oh god i thought it was so clever and so good and you know even i mean me not being a eight-year-old eighth, eighth grade girl even when i find myself scrolling social media in a time of anxiety that's what I feel. I feel a weird serenity, but also a crushing anxiety. What What do you think? What is the crushing anxiety about? Is it Is it the fear FOMO, of missing man. out? Is it the measuring yourself against this endless stream of images? That too. Hmm? Yeah, that too. I think hmm. you hit the nail on the head. Hmm. What do you think, Claire? Well, I I think it's interesting that you experienced that. Uh, I mean, I know you're on Instagram a decent amount because I always check to see who's watched my Instagram stories because that's mm-hmm. how into social media I am. Um, but even knowing that, I mean, you mostly post like adorable pictures of your dog. I, I actually wouldn't have guessed that Instagram has that same effect on you that it has on me. So that's oh well, I don't not know, it's not just not Instagram in spe- not Instagram specifically, but as you may or may not know, I have a YouTube channel that uh, <laughs> you know kind of dictates you know the success of it kind of dictates everything about my life. So <laughs> oh, for for honestly, like a good two or three seconds, I didn't realize you were talking about Wisecrack. And yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I thought I was like, oh my god, Jared has his own channel where he gives advice, like oh, Kayla. No, no, no. It's, no I want to no, watch nothing it. Nothing like that. No, yeah. I mean, I have a very, very odd relationship to my phone and checking various. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I don't do Instagram like that because I don't want to duplicate the experience or the relationship I have to my phone with YouTube. Do you like, spend just, time in the comment section? No. No? I mean, sometimes, but uh, that's not... I mean, really just mostly, like, uh, you know, subscriber counts, view counts, thumbs mm. up to thumbs down ratio, sometimes comments. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but, so I, I mentioned this um, 
recently on, a, on another podcast I did, but I feel like it's really relevant. Actually, with Lux, who's for people listening, who's one of our writers and directors who's been on um, uh, on Show Me the Meaning as well. He was on the Inglorious Bastards one. But um, he came on our podcast and we were talking about there's this philosopher named Michelle Ferrer who wrote a new book called Rated Agency. And he just did a, like a month-long residency here in Sydney. So I spent a lot of quality time with him and he was a student of Gilles Deleuze for people out there who um, care about the history of philosophy. Um, but he basically has this this idea that he is really working through. He's also a translator of a lot of Michel Foucault's um, lectures from uh, the Collage de France. Um, and so he, he's inspired by Foucault's explorations of neoliberalism as a regime of governmentality, which basically is just a, a form of how it is to manage bodies and to constitute bodies and the creation of identities from within certain frameworks, right? And he says that we're in a contemporary mode that isn't even what um, we tend to think of as neoliberalism, which is a term that obviously gets thrown around a lot, he says, but it's something else. And he says that, yeah, there were neoliberal reforms that were instituted, but the effects that came from this institution of this socioeconomic regime have led to what he calls people just trying to be portfolio managers managing their assets. And your assets are how many followers you have on Twitter, how many likes you get, um, how many people visit your LinkedIn uh, profile, uh, how many Facebook friends you have, what's your Uber rating, what's your Uber Eats rating, Um, what's your WeWork profile like, whatever. And you are uh, diffused throughout all these various platform programs and those things end up being these assets that you are constantly seeking to manage. Like you were just saying, Jared, you're looking at subscriber counts. You're looking at comments. You're looking at those things. That's your rating. And your rating for you very palpably is what determines your income. Like you are wedded to this rating system. Well, other people are also wedded to it, both in terms of their income, whether or not they can get a job on LinkedIn and they can court a good employer to hire them, but also it's about the social value that you can derive from how lucrative your asset portfolio is, quote unquote, right? So constantly then, we are these portfolio managers that are constantly trying to court investment from outside other people who are portfolio managers. And we're all swapping Um, our investment strategies and our investment positions based on our equity stake in the quote-unquote market, this market of assets. And so constantly then what we are under the pressure of is this increasing rate of demand to um, make our diversified portfolio more attractive to a sea of investors that we're seeking to perpetually court. And he says, and that's what defines what, I mean, I I would even call it like a post-neoliberal age, but that's what defines our present moment. It's not the entrepreneur of the self, which is what the neoliberal reformers wanted to really stimulate as you have your human capital and you can invest in yourself and your education and knowledge production and you can take those things to the market. No, it's different now. That's what they intended to do, but it led to this other experience. And I think that that really is a very excellent way of describing this perpetuation of like us being so obsessed with our sign value on these various social media platforms. I want to hear more about, so Claire, you mentioned Instagram and how you have similar experiences to uh, Kayla in the movie. I mean, obviously, if you say whatever you want to say, but I'm curious as to how that manifests in your day to day. 
Yeah. Um, Just quickly on what Austin was talking about, I think that that's really interesting. And um, I'm not familiar with Michelle Fair. Um, I'll probably look him up after we're done recording. But the way that that, I mean, not that complexity of knowledge and analysis, but some sort of intuition that this is what's happening um, is part of the way that we talk about social media, just in the term personal brand, even working on mm-hmm. building your personal brand. And your personal brand is about a curation of um the self and who yourself is presented to the world in a particular way, which then, you know, influences job prospects and whatnot. Um, And it's also as a brand with you being a brand manager um, Mm. is very much, uh, I think, relegated to these sort of um, quantified terms. I'm not going to be able to put it as well as you did because I'm not familiar with the material. But but it's interesting that that's not just an analysis that a philosopher found and wrote and is separate from the normal kinds of discourse. I, I think it's really interesting that it's woven already into the discourse of how we talk about personal brands Mm. so i I wanted to point that out first because i i really like that connection Mm. um so on on my own experience of instagram uh your own experience as a as a personal brand (laughs) my own experience (laughs) as a personal brand yeah um i so i'm I don't think it was the last time I was on Show Me the Meaning. Maybe like two times ago on Show Me the Meaning, I was talking about um, my the way that I am influenced by influencers and mm. um, it got a little personal there. So I don't know if I necessarily need to repeat that whole thing. But uh, yeah, my experience with social media, especially Instagram, I don't use Snapchat. I think it's actually been offloaded off my phone when it ran out of memory from all the selfies I took. Um, (laughs) But I use Instagram quite a bit and I use Twitter quite a bit. And there is a really substantial difference in my Instagram versus my Twitter. My Twitter is um, open. It's uh, I am constantly aware that anybody could see my tweets. And so I mean, I probably wouldn't like advertise some of them, but there it's always I'm I, I'm always aware that there is a kind of like surveillance that I could be being watched on my Twitter. And that really um, sort of I, I mean, probably for everybody who has an open Twitter shapes the way that you frame um, your tweets. It shapes that kind of social media presence. My Instagram, which I'm on just as much as Twitter, is com- a completely different experience. I have it set to private. I don't um, accept any follow requests from anybody that I don't personally know. Um, and uh, the But the way that I use it is usually to um, still to curate a kind of personal brand that isn't accessible to the outside world, to employers. Um, It is 
only accessible to people who already know me in person and yet it's still trying to shape how the people who see me every day in real life understand me Mm. and I don't think about that right when I'm like posting a selfie or something and like trying to come up with a good caption but but that's what it is that's navigating this sort of space of what constitutes the self um and it is in this very weird, awkward, tenuous position of it's not it's it's meant to be a representation of who I am in real life. It could never actually really be that. Um, but it's also not completely separated from that in my experience because it's only accessible to people who know me in real life. So, I don't know if that's making much sense, but my my personal relationship to Instagram is, I think, a very strange one because I'm still trying to curate an image of the self, but to people who already have an mm. understanding of who I am. And I don't know the psychology of why I do that, but mm. I think that I'm certainly not the only person who does. And it does lead to a lot of interesting questions about what does, what does Instagram offer in how you present yourself to people who already know you what can instagram do that makes how at least in in, you know the mind of the person posting that makes other people's experience of you augmented by what they see on social media um yeah, I, I feel <laughs> I, I don't feel like that was particularly well worded. And I'm going to blame that on the fact that I just listened to eighth graders talk for an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> but well, hopefully it, that it, sort of conveys. No, it, it it's adds, interesting. It adds a layer of like semiotic meaning of signs of of like symbols of images that um, are shared in common that, that that we all kind of have access to. So when you take a, a selfie and it's you kind of like standing at a place where either you've seen other people or maybe you haven't, but nevertheless, you've seen them do a similar pose and you're doing a duck face or something like that, like everybody does every once in a while, right? <laughs> How dare like, you? No. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I, I think I follow you on Instagram, so I've seen it. Come on. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, but, but I recently read an article about not just shitting on the practice of selfies as being this narcissistic activity, and it really actually challenged a lot of presuppositions that I've held about social media culture because the argument um, for people that are interested, it's on Verso, V-E-R-S-O blog. And I can't remember what the title is, but it's about selfies. So if you just type Verso and selfies, it's it's a very sort of not even positive. It's more of like a descriptive take on how selfie and this practice is something that is just simply part of the performative constitution of subjectivity that has always existed, that, that sociologists talk about, like when you're posing in your bedroom and you're practicing your walk to make sure that you walk upright and that you look strong and confident if you're a dude, right? Like these these are all things that we are enacting to perform so that when we go out into social media, we're already practiced. Or sorry, when we go out into a social environment, we're already practiced, right? It's like practicing for the game. And the selfie is maybe a difference, I think what this author would argue, in degree instead of just a qualitative difference. It's it's something where we are engaging in this sharing activity of signs and images so that we can kind of socially engage with one another and share that I too am in a similar experience of you, but it's still my own individual experience that you can find common, but also recognize that I have a uniqueness in my sharing of this common experience. So there's this like 
there's this social universality, but also a singularity that is taking place through the practice of this exchanging of signs on these various social media platforms. And for me, I, when, when I think about it that way, it doesn't it isn't something that we just should shit on as being like narcissistic. I think it's something that we should really think about thoughtfully because it's not necessarily something that's just simply bad. It's something that is maybe simply human. And for, for us, it's best to understand how and in what ways that affects us social, socially. Sure. All right, guys, I just want to bring the conversation back to the movie. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about <clears throat> is the dinner scene with her dad. I love this scene. So one of the things I really like about this scene is that we see a close-up of her Instagram feed, and we hear the music non-diegetically, which means that we think that what we're hearing is just the soundtrack to the movie. And then as we're watching that, we are experiencing kind of the high of scrolling through the endless feed of social media. But then her dad calls out to her, and the music is revealed to be diegetic, which means that she's listening to the music on her earbuds. There's actually a definable source within the frame that the music mm. is coming from. And then it widens out to her in what is supposed to be an intimate setting, you know, or a form of communion, a meal. And I love how this scene stays in a wide shot for a long time because we see we see Kayla on one side of the screen and her dad on the other showing this distance between them. And I really think that's it's just Bo Burnham is just so wise beyond his years because by starting the scene like this, it's not only really effective because we're further identifying the audience with Kayla since we're sharing the experience of scrolling through social media and listening to music with her. Hmm. But it also brings us into that mental rush of experiencing the feed. And I think just, oh, yeah, like subtle uh, manipulations of perspective like that really adds so much to a movie. And Bo Burnham does such an amazing job with it. Hmm. Um, yeah. There's yeah. another example of this after the pool party. So after she goes to the pool party and she does the karaoke, there's a part where she feels a little bit empowered about her <laughs> potential popularity, and she starts taking new profile pics for Instagram. And that scene almost feels like a, a montage between two lovers that you would see in most movies. Like, it's backlit, it's really sunny, she's in a park, but it's just between her and her phone. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I took that to be very indicative of kind of social media narcissism, not in a condemning way, like, I don't think that Bo Burnham is saying, like, oh, look at these kids and their phones. You know, they need to be connecting with real human beings. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think that it is perhaps a bit coy to dramatize the scene like that, but uh, it's just so good. Um, well, there is a sense that you – there is an eros. There is a desire relationship that is taking place with, like, yourself and – and the image and i think that when she's doing that it's because she really is seeking it's almost like she is there's an there is an unrequited love affair that is going on you know she mm -hmm. obviously has the crush on the popular kid who as claire i think described him as a geek earlier which was great <laughs> or a nerd <laughs> or whatever but he's the popular kid man he's the you know he's the chad he's the 13 year old chad and oh uh, god <laughs> And she and and she's 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 frustrated in her budding libidinal sexual desires in her awakening, right? She doesn't really know how to attach those things. And this is one of the things that's so powerful about what social media gives people is that gives them a clear target to attach their libido to. Um, and libido doesn't just simply mean sex. It, it can mean just desire in a more sort of nascent 
way. And I think that's what I mean by this erotic relationship. I think the way you describe it, Jared, is absolutely right. It is a love affair. And she's seeking some target as the object of her affection. And unfortunately, I think I think it is a condemnation, but it's not a condemnation necessarily of social media per se. It's a condemnation of the experience of alienation that comes from a fractured society via the the medium of social media. Um, in this particular instance, that's really heightened in her experience as a young girl that you know, she does need connection. She does need something that she can latch onto that is that is that is tangible and she's frustrated at every turn. So it, it is a it is yeah. a lover scene, but it's a it's an unrequited lover scene, I think. There's there's like a tragedy to it. I really yeah. like how you frame that, Austin. Um, the love affair, the sort of unrequited love affair with the self. Um, and I, I think that is a really accurate way to to describe what she's doing with social media and with selfies. Um, but that makes me wonder. So uh, the word narcissism has come up a few times. Obviously, I've you know heard plenty of people use narcissism to talk about selfies, especially women taking selfies and girls taking selfies. Um, and I I wonder is something like a love affair with the self is that immediately condemned to be narcissistic because that's um, I mean you know going back to the Greek myth of Narcissus, yes, probably it would be, but. When we think of narcissism in a psychological sense, it means something very different. When we talk about narcissism very like casually and colloquially, it can mean a few different things. So um, I guess the real question there is maybe to talk about whether it's narcissism or a kind of like beautiful and tragic love affair with the self. Um, I kind of want to know what you all think narcissism means when people talk about selfies being narcissistic. I think going back to what Austin said earlier about having this portfolio of the self that you have to basically just pimp out over the internet in order to, you know, get a job or maintain a job or whatever. I think that there is a tragedy to it because you have, it's not narcissism as an end in itself. It's like a necessary narcissism that people have been pushed into. So in her case, I don't think that she's really so in love with herself. I think, to, if anything, she's full of self-loathing, which I know also can be an element of narcissism. But I think that, you know, I'm reminded of the part in the movie where she takes an Instagram photo with a filter that is, highly manipulates her face. And she says, just woke up like this. Uh. <laughs> and then she puts down the phone and it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did that. And waits for likes, comments, etc. Because, yeah, she's essentially – she's put some money down. She's invested in herself, and she's waiting for that return. And that's something that is – it's just imposed on her societally. So it's hard for me to say that she is like Narcissus. It would be more like if Narcissus was only – you know, if he kept looking at himself in the lake or in the mirror, then, you know, eventually maybe he'll get enough followers to get cast in a movie or something like that. Or if like he, if he, he had... gathered people around him at the pond mm. and just had everyone else look at his reflection. Sure. Yeah, I think that's probably more apt. That's a really – I think that's a really important point actually because – and this goes back to that article that I read that really has caused me to rethink some of my my biases is that we we are so quick. I have been so quick to judge selfie taking and so quick to judge um, the use of 
Instagram filters on like dating apps and stuff and you know so quick to to condemn and so quick to even judge myself in my inclinations to want to engage in those things because I view it as somehow me partaking in this narcissistic quote unquote narcissistic activity and I think that Claire your intuition to ask that question is right and Jared what you just said is right it's not actually narcissistic in the sense of the myth where Narcissus falls in love with not just himself because he's young and beautiful by looking at his reflection, but it's even the actions. Like when he reaches out to touch and then the water scrambles and he he loses himself for a moment and he's like, wait a second, where did you go? Come back. And then he comes back and he's like, oh, I know you want me because you do the same movements as me and you try to talk with me and, and you obviously are doing the same exact thing as me. So the depth of Narcissus's um, self-indulgence is far greater and it's at a different level than what this young girl is doing when she takes a picture of herself and then is craving social attention. It is a very different impulse and I think that that's something we need to really consider that when we speak of narcissism, I think that if we're going to tie it to the myth and if we're going to talk about it as being like a sort of a, a psychological thing to criticize – it is actually the cutting off of our desires for social connection. But that's not what she's expressing. She's expressing the anxiety that comes from social fracturing. And to mm -hmm. me, I don't think that's narcissistic so much as it is as um, a genuine expression of anxiety. And I think that's something very different. And I think we need to be really careful when we just so quickly leap to judgment, you know? I do, for at sure. Least. I do too, because uh, I I I think didn't you share that that uh, article in the writers chat? I did. I think maybe I glanced over it. Yeah, I need to go back and read that. But last thing I want to talk about before we go into the mailbag, let's talk about Kayla's arc. So let's talk about the time capsule. So she replays her sixth grade time capsule. She looks in it. She sees a ticket to the Lego Movie. She sees a Harry Potter book. She sees a USB stick that is SpongeBob shaped. And when she when she replays her sixth grade time capsule, she's saying, oh, man, I'm so excited to go to middle school. It's probably all common for you now since you're all done with middle school now. But do you have a boyfriend? And then she makes a new video for herself with her eighth grade self. And now her attitude is more maybe look different, if not cool. Maybe you have a boyfriend, if not cool. If high school sucked just as much as middle school, just move forward. No matter what, stay cool. And I can't wait to be with you. And then I also noticed that, you know, the one that she burns has this very ornate thing that says the coolest girl in the world. And then the new one is basically just with a Sharpie. Is this just a general maturing that we're supposed to take away from this? Is it just a, a real self-acceptance that no matter who you are, I can't wait to just be you to move forward? What did you guys think of kind of Kayla's epiphany in this movie? I um, I think that... So that's an interesting note that the box, and I do remember this now that, you know, it had those stand up sticky letters that do take, you know, a minute to mm -hmm. put on for the sixth grade box versus it just being sort of scrawled with a Sharpie on the eighth grade box. Um, but th that's interesting that your attention was to the box. My attention was so much more to the YouTube videos because, mm. um, or the, I guess they weren't on YouTube, uh, but the, the videos, because we've been talking this whole time about the way that uh, the selfie um, sort of 
for Kayla in the film uh, negotiates this relationship with herself and we see that in the YouTube videos just hiked up to level 100 she's literally having a conversation with herself one where she acknowledges that she can't talk back but she's yeah she's having an she she's by giving herself her future self, a video to watch and to react to. Um, it's a playing out of the same, I think, sort of dynamic that is happening in selfies. And so when she makes the YouTube video that says, um, you know, whoever you end up being, that's great. If you look like me, that's great. If you look different than me, that's fine too. Um, it's that kind of conversation, especially about her appearance, I think, was so poignant to me um, as a character development coming from the selfies with the filters where she didn't feel good about herself right. and that she did feel good about herself. Um, she's having that same experience, but in the form of an actual really sort of what's a conversation um and so yeah i i I paid much more attention to the youtube i keep calling it youtube the the video component of the time capsule um but i i am interested to hear more about the what you think of the the import of the physical product um because there is probably something that's significant in that and that's just not something that i thought about very much when i was watching it well the, well, the one thing that I'll point to, to, to two things. One, the SpongeBob USB is then changed to a koala bear USB. <laughs> I think this is just general growing up. Um, but the other thing is that in the new box, there's a picture of her dad that you can see. Mm. And other than that, I think that's probably the most important detail of what's in the box. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of all I'm coming away with it. The one oh, last detail I'll that's mention the shit that gets is me that the when... most, man, as someone who's got daddy issues, man, uh, any, yeah, man. anytime that stuff happens, I'm getting teary eyed thinking about it. Where you said the dad, I'm like, oh, that's right. The dad. Yeah. No, that, that yeah. Hits every me in the all that, that scene, that scene at the end when they're burning it and she says or and he says, I'm just so happy to be your dad. I mean, <laughs> shit. Yeah. It's too good. It's too fucking good. It is. Too um. Good. Oh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So the, when she's making that final YouTube video, usually we see her through the interface of YouTube and we see her in kind of like the the low res video. But then when she's making that last one where she says, I'm not going to make these videos anymore, we actually just see her through the camera. We're seeing her in the, it's probably not 35 millimeter film, but like the, the film lens aesthetic, which I thought was kind of cool. But anyway, um, we're going to change the subject before Austin breaks down. So we're going to move into the mailbag. Uh, if you guys want to send us an email, questions, comments, concerns, it is movies at wisecrack.co. Or if you want to send us a voicemail, it's 213-534-8807 or 21elfgut07. By the way, have either of you seen John Wick 3? I no, haven't. Oh, man. All right. Well, it's going to be me answering some of these voicemail questions, but let's start <laughs> with Matt. Hi, this is Matt. Uh, just finished listening to your John Wick 3 uh, Show Me the Meaning. Um, I'm actually surprised you guys didn't talk more about how, at the end of it, how you guys did touch on um, the angels and God and the devil and how John really looks like the devil and how, in the end, just like Lucifer, he gets tossed from heaven, a.k.a. the roof of the Continental, by a figure that you uh, you would even say is God. Also, uh, 
the show that he's thinking of where uh, this actor plays Winston, plays God's figure, is on Stars, and he actually plays Odin. Well, he calls himself Wednesday, but he's Odin, so he actually plays God on that one, too. Uh, but, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that kind of religious uh, looking and how the Bowery King, uh, who is the underworld of this whole uh, world, is the only person that takes John in after that, and how John has went from being at the top and just served the man above the high table and is now uh, teaming up with the Bowery, who is like the barely connected underworld of this underworld assassination uh, uh, company. Uh, so uh, thanks for what you guys do, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Cool. Thanks, Matt. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting read. Also, because I do think that if there is a Paradise Lost connection, it probably will be the next movie. Because, as Matt, Matt said, he falls from the tower or from the building, and then they kind of vow, him and the Bowery King vow revenge at the end. And, yeah, if the Bowery King, I mean, I don't know if the Bowery King is Satan. I don't know if he's Beelzebub or whoever, but... I definitely think that, you know, the people who have been cast down below coming up and seeking vengeance on the people above ground at the Continental, I think that that will definitely create some further tasty devil, perhaps paradise loss imagery and illusions and stuff. So thank you for the message, Matt. We're going to do one more about uh, the movie Seven. This is from Anonymous. Hey, guys, just got done listening to the Seven podcast. It was great one of my favorite movies, but wanted to talk about the city and kind of what it represented, at least in my interpretation. In the draft of the script, they ended up cutting the scene, but in the beginning, Morgan Freeman's looking at buying a new house away from the city out in the country, and there's a piece of wallpaper he notices. And I can't remember if he peels it away at the end or at the beginning, but he peels it away. Underneath, there's like this rose, lovely pattern. And that was kind of the journey his character needed to go on he needed to pull away the grime and everything that was awful about the city which is basically what all that was with all the decor and everything's rotting and he needed to pull that away get back to himself which had this little glimmer of hope so i always enjoyed that about the script sad it didn't make it into the movie but anyways love the podcast keep it going can't wait for the next episode cool thank you anonymous i had i have not read any recent or previous drafts of seven but that's super interesting I also remember reading, and this is like some IMDb trivia or something, that the screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker based the city on New York because I guess he had been living in New York in perhaps the early 80s or something like that. And uh, Alec knows the New York history better than I do because he lives there. But uh, I believe there was you know, definitely heightened crime there, and he was perhaps not having the best time there, so he painted it as this hellhole. Although, ironically, it was later shot in Los Angeles. But um, yeah, love that movie, man. All right, we're going to move into the mailbag. So once again, if you want to send us vo uh, another voicemail, so 213-534-8807 or uh, emails at movies at wisecrack.co. This one is from Peter. So this is a movie that all you guys have seen, so you guys can chime in. This is about Office Space. So he says, I listened to your Office Space episode today and later was reading Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. This is the second time someone's called in about this book, uh, which had a passage about this movie as a critique about post-Fordist labor relations. It had me thinking about the ending of the movie with Peter working construction. Is Judge implying that revolt against the man is ultimately futile? 
leading to, I assume, unreliable contract work. Perhaps Peter's contentment is merely another myth of the blue-collar American dream. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this movie in relation to late-stage capitalism. Love the podcast. And then he says, P.S., Really enjoyed your Walkabout Rogue episode. Will you be analyzing more auteur cinema, Tarkovsky, Wenders? I think Austin and I just, we just talked about Vim Wenders like last week. Yeah, I just saw uh, Wings of Desire recently and I haven't stopped thinking about it for every day since. He also says, would love to hear Austin's take on Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ and or Silence. Uh, mm. All right, so that's a lot. Mm. Have you read that Mark Fisher book, Austin or Claire? Yeah, Claire, have you read it? No. So the book was huge. For people who don't know, Mark Fisher uh, recently actually passed away within the last um, year and a half, maybe two years. Um, and uh, But he was a, a extremely influential online blogger. He blogged under the name of K-Punk for a long time. And then he's a, he's a philosopher, cultural critic. But this book caused a bit of a sensation in certain circles as well as a couple of other things that he, that he wrote that gained him quite a bit of notoriety. Um, but the idea is, is that he kind of takes the notion of Tina, which is there is no alternative to the idea of capitalism, and he turns it into this notion of capitalist realism where it becomes so presumed that this just simply is the way that life is lived that you can't even really think of an alternative. And so what are the effects when capitalism becomes the realism of the world, um, the thing outside of which nothing else exists. How does that affect us psychologically, socially, uh, economically, et cetera, et cetera? So that's what the book is basically about. It's a short little read for people who are interested in it, like, like you know, like 140 pages. It's like a, it's it's a short little monograph. So give it a, give it a shout. And uh, what do you think about the ending of Office Space in relation to that? Yeah, I don't know. I'd never thought of that before. Um, I don't know. Is it contract work? Do they, I mean, he says, in, did, did he say when he wrote it that he presumes that that's contract work? I mean, yeah. You mean uh, the end of Office Space? I don't, I think he, yeah, it's not it's specified implied. whether he's got a full-time job or whether it's just contract work. Uh, I mean, he is fixing the rubble of his old building, right? So it could yeah. very well just be a contract job. And the question is then in relation to Fisher's book, is there an escape, right? So yeah, you get out of one shitty, mindless, dead-end job, but nevertheless, you're still participating in a system that exploits your labor and that extracts value more than you get in return for what you're inputting into the system. Um, so is there a way out? I mean, that's a pretty dour ending and maybe maybe that's what we get with office space but um but i'm not sure i hadn't thought about it in connection with fisher but i can see it i can definitely see it for what it's worth i love last temptation of christ and i love silence yeah. do you also like those movies austin yeah i mean come on i'm a sucker for anything that engages with spirituality in a meaningful and non-caricatured caricatured way and Scorsese seems to get it you know I, I don't know how devout he is as a Catholic I know he's talked about it a, quite a bit and obviously he's written now a couple of films that explore uh, explicitly Catholic themes but I thought Silence was fantastic it's actually meant more to me like upon reflection than it did even when I saw it like when I saw it I was like wow that's really good but I, as I've thought about it and talked with friends about it now over the ensuing couple of years it's really come to gain even more value to me because it's this poetic meditation on this conflict between a western religion meeting and eastern peoples and I just love Liam Neeson's character there's that bit where he says, like, you know, you come here and you talk about the Son of God, and for them, the word son means something totally different, right? And it's like those 
there's anecdotes that you get when Christian missionaries go to India and they talk to like Hindu uh, worshipers and they're like, oh, here's Jesus. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, we'll take Jesus. Yeah, he can sit right next to Krishna and Vishnu. And he, he and the Christian's like, no, 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 he's the God. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Here's, here's our other the God. You know, and it's like there's just this almost incommensurability between these worldviews. And silence seems to really kind of portray that tension so beautifully and poetically. And I, I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. Love it. All right, we got two more emails I want to blow through about John Wick 3. So one is from Chandler. He says, great podcast as always. You mentioned that the high table is never shown. Wasn't it one of the main settings of John Wick 2 in Italy? I might be remembering that movie wrong. So Chandler, from what I remember, and I've seen the movie a number of times because I'm a John Wick fanboy, but the conflict is that the guy, um, uh, I can't remember his name, so the guy who comes with the marker and tells John Wick that you have to do what I say because here it is written in blood, he basically says, you need to go kill my sister because she has my spot at the high table. So although the high table is a central conflict piece for the movie, we don't actually ever see it. Um, all right, so this next one is from Matthew. He says, hey, guys, I'm a newcomer to the podcast. Well, welcome, Matthew, and I'll keep it short. He says, I saw the adjudicator much akin to an angel, not your guardian white wing protector, but as the fire and blood enforcers of God, the high table and the ones above, and their laws and rules. This led me to think, what if all the assassins in the world are sinners? They maintain a bare minimum of humanity with the rules that are enforced and are never able to find salvation. Love you guys. Hope I can hear what you think on this. I love all of these connections that you guys are coming up mm -hmm. with, with John Wick and all the uh, various biblical imagery, because Austin, if you do see John Wick 3, they really do double down Good. on a lot of religious imagery. There's a lot of, uh, instead of the marker, they have this new thing called the ticket, and it's basically a rosary. There's a lot of very, very red imagery. There's a lot of, uh, there's John Wick um, riding a black horse like he's Satan. It's all pretty awesome. So, mm. yeah, keep sending in those emails. I can't wait to see if they go even further with it in John Wick 4, which was recently announced, so we can all be very happy about that. Oh, so this is going to happen. Like, it's, like, so John Wick 3 has done well. Yeah. Oh, damn. So I mean, this is it, was, be like, it was weak. They're going to have, like, it, you know how there's, like, Fast 9 or whatever it is? There's going to be, like, John Wick 17. I hope so. I mean, you know, <laughs> but Keanu Reeves is old. I mean, he's, like, in his 50s. Nah, man, he's not old. He's just life experienced. Yeah, I hope so, man. Yeah. I've never seen right, any of the John Wicks, and all I know is it has the first one has something to do with a dog, and now I know that there's a high table involved. Oh, well, and, the and a marker and a rosary. Somebody and a fucks black with horse. his dog, and he kills every single one of them. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, all right. It's on the list. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? Claire. Um, you can find my Twitter at the Claire Report. But you cannot find her on Instagram because it's private. I mean, people people you, have Austin? before. People have definitely found me from podcasts um, on on my Instagram, but I just rejected them. Sorry, guys. Uh, cold. Anyone is free to look at my dog photos at, at Father of Woody <laughs> on Instagram. But anyway, Austin, what about you, man? Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. If you want, you can hit me up on Insta. I don't really use it that much. It's A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. And I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. We just did one with Lux. Uh, I mentioned him earlier on wrestling, kayfabe, and catharsis, and like Greek tragedy in theater. And that guy... He convinced me that wrestling has some substance to it, man. So check oh, that yeah. episode out if you're interested in that. Is show. that already out? Yeah, it's out. We just released it last night. Oh, cool. I will listen to that one for sure. It's 
Sweet. All right, guys. So other than that, just want to let you know, Alec and I have done two pilot episodes for a new culture podcast that is on our WiseCast channel. We're going to try and keep that going. We will be launching an RSS feed for it shortly. We just have to get all our ducks in order. Um, other than that, see you later. Gucci. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.